Welcome to the Readings Podcast, a celebration of books. I'm Nico Callaghan. In today's episode, Dirt Town is Hayley Scrivener's first novel, an earlier version of which was shortlisted for the Penguin Literary Prize and won the Kill Your Darlings Unpublished Manuscript Award. In a small country town, 12-year-old Esther Bianchi disappears. A no-nonsense cop must put her ex-girlfriend out of mind and do everything she can to find the missing girl. Lynn Yoat, author of The Silent Listener, joins Scrivener in conversation. Here's the recording of the event. Welcome everybody, especially for coming out on such a cold, blustery Melbourne winter night. I also want to acknowledge that we are on unceded land and this is land where we live, work and exchange stories. And I too pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging. Now we are here with Hayley Scrivener. And I might just say that although this is Hayley's debut novel, she is no stranger to the literary world, having been director of the Wollongong Writers' Festival and she holds a PhD in creative writing. So it's actually Dr (laughs) Hayley Scrivener to you, okay? And I guess to me as well. I have to tell you that I have obviously read this book and absolutely loved it and so it is no surprise at all that an earlier version of the manuscript was shortlisted for the Penguin Literary Prize and won, of course, the Kill Your Darlings Unpublished Manuscript Award for 2020. Yeah, that's right. So, welcome Hayley and congratulations. Kaylee and I are going to have a bit of a conversation and then I'm going to open it up to questions. So while we're talking, I would really like people to think about what you would like to know from Hayley, anything about her journey to publication, what it's like now for her to be a published author, why she's written this book. Yeah, we're, we're up for anything. You yeah. can ask Lynn questions too, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. She might be right. a wiser <laughs> and more, uh, and, uh, more efficacious answerer. I'll delegate them to Hayley because it's her night tonight. All right, so Hayley, let's start. Can you give us an elevator pitch for your novel? So for those of you not in the industry, this is kind of like two sentences that sum up the novel that would make me rather kill than miss out on reading this novel. Go for it. Well, I'm so glad you started with an easy question, Lynn. Um, No, I thought about this in the cab on the way over. It's the story of what happens when a young girl doesn't come home And it's the story of who we are when no one's looking. Dirt Town is the story of Esther Bianchi, who is 12 years old when she's walking home from school one day and doesn't make it home. So it's her story, but it's also the story of her best friend, Ronnie, who is at first can't quite understand that her friend is gone, doesn't believe it. But as she begins to understand the seriousness of what's happened, really is willing to do anything she can to bring her best friend home. It's also the story of their friend, Lewis, who is a young boy. He's friends with both Ronnie and Esther. And because of something he saw on the day Esther went missing, you know, he has something he could could tell the police and he has something that he could contribute, but he's too afraid for his own reasons. And we'll, we'll talk about Lewis probably a bit later. There's Esther's mother, Constance, whose life is falling apart around her once her daughter disappears. Everyone and everything she sort of thought she knew about her life is kind of falling apart around her. And into all of this, into this small, tight-knit community of Durton, which is, you know, the community where Esther lives, less than 2,000 people, a small country town, comes Detective Sergeant Sarah Michaels, who's come from Sydney and is... and 
and experiences that she she's had and the per- kind of person she is really, I think, sets her up to be the person who can ultimately unpick what has happened. And on top of all that, and I'm sure we'll talk more about this, is what I think of as a Greek chorus of, of children. And I loved that in, in your questions that we kind of talked about before we met today, you also think of it that way and I do. So they're this collective of children that kind of come on and speak about the events of, that are happening in the town. And really it's about what happens to a town when you take someone out of it and how that affects every single person in that space. So in this, the midst of this kind of whodunit, there's also really, I think, a meditation on what it is to grow up, what it is to, to face loss, how a, a single event and a single crime can really ripple out and kind of rip apart a place, I think. Mm, yeah, that's really good. I, I really like what you've just said there. So uh, that um, we character that you touched on, I thought, I think is one of the best elements of this book. It's really original. I'm jealous. I wish I'd thought of it and included it in a novel. And I guess if I do now, it's, everyone's going to say you copied it from her. So I'm stuck. I can't do it. But it's absolutely compelling, highly original and very insightful, both in terms of what's happening to the characters in the place, Dirt, Dirtan or Dirt Town, as the kids call it, and also in a much sort of wider, more um, worldly wisdom way... I didn't express that very well. No, but you're right. They're looking <laughs> back on events too. Yeah. So there is an yeah. element of understanding and, and knowledge that's come into it. Yeah, it's kind of a collective consciousness, isn't it? And I find it really, really interesting. It was one of the first things that grabbed me about the book. So can you read a little bit um, from one of the we chapters and the bit I know that you've selected to write also sets up the central key event that triggers a whole lot of other things happening in um, Durton. Thanks, Hayley. Yeah, thanks, Lynn. And it is, it is just the, the beginning, basically, which is often the easiest part in a crime, a crime novel to read aloud, so I will... It, the chapter begins Tuesday, 4 December 2001. It was still dark. Even if the sun had been up, we would not have needed to look around us. It was the same dirt, lazily punctuated here and there by dry, dry grass, the same rust-ring cement water trough close to the fence line, the same white cypress pines that dotted our own family's properties, a landscape as familiar to us as the backs of our own eyelids. And we knew we'd found the spot again by the smell. It pushed its way into our nose and throat like a rod of twisted tissue rammed so far it hurt. It was the smell of dead lambs left to rot in the sun. The stitches in the man's arm tugged as he turned the steering wheel of his ute. From his vantage point in the driver's seat, the main house was just a smudge in the distance. The sun was coming up now. He was checking the fences after his time away from the farm. If he'd driven just a metre closer to the fence line, a metre was nothing on a property like his. He never would have found it. But the ute's cab tipped slightly as he drove over soft ground. The man stood in the space created by the open front door of the vehicle and the smell hit him the same way it had hit us. He walked around the car and plucked a shovel from the tray. Us kids heard and saw it all. The man's laboured breathing was interrupted only by the occasional shink of the shovel in soil. We watched his face as he winced in pain. We took note of the angle of his shoulders as the blade hit something that did not give, something that was not dirt or a root. We saw him crouch to scoop away earth with one hand, running his fingers along shiny black plastic. It was four days since anyone, including us, had seen Esther Bianchi. (laughs) 
So one of the things I really like about this book, and I think it's very evident even from that small extract, is that you are really an extraordinary writer and I think you craft your sentences incredibly well. And one of the things that I particularly liked in Dirt Town is your use of metaphors and similes. So I'm just going to read a couple because <laughs> I really think they're amazing. So uh, this first one I'm going to read is when um, Ronnie, Esther's friend, uh, thinks about the fact that she remembers things about um, Esther and she says, it's impossible now to unlink my memories of Esther from each other like train cars with their couplings soldered together each memory of her brings with it another one, surging forward on and on in a long, clattering line, which I just love. And then another one when Lewis is in trouble. This is perhaps my favourite one. You, you wrote, he didn't seem able to move or speak. He felt as if his guts were about to leak out from under his toenails. <laughs> and I just... I just think he did this brilliantly. And so I want to know, did this come naturally to you? Did you spend hours thinking about them? Did you deliberately do this? Did you have to rewrite and recraft each of these sentences? What, what was the process for you? Well, first I have to say how meaningful it is to get that kind of feedback from a writer like yourself. And, and I think what um, hearing people love the sentences is kind of the most exciting thing for me as a writer. And I think we actually have a fairly similar journey in that I set out to write what I thought was literary fiction. And that's simply because, uh, for a number of reasons, um, but I was doing a PhD, you know, I thought the book would be quite experimental because I had this idea of the Greek chorus. And so, I, and I'm really a writer, and I know every writer writes sentence by sentence, but for me, writing is is kind of about the glory of the sentence and the joy of the sentence. And I love, you know, George Saunders talks about that positive negative um, dial we all have in our heads and you kind of, you play with every word and every permutation until until the, the needle is all the way to positive. Um, and you do that, you try and do that for every sentence. Um, and then what's been, what's been wonderful, I think, with both our books is that I think we both got pulled in the direction of plot in terms of saying, oh, but I want to know more about this or I need to understand more and I need to understand more. And I have the feeling that... I stand beside the sentences and I'm, I'm sort of proud of them, but I, it's the, and then you layer over a plot and you, or you undergird a plot or you, you have a structure over that that makes people want to read it to also find out what happened. But more sp specific, and I think your book does that so, so beautifully, and I, was, I really enjoyed hearing you speak about the fact that you could start out not quite knowing what your book was going to be and that was okay. And I actually think now that everyone's book starts out not, you know, it, it, it sort of becomes what it is and you have to learn what it is as you kind of go along and other people help you figure that out. You have some control, but often I feel like you kind of are the writer you are and I'm a sentences writer and I always will be, I think. Um, but I love plot and I want things to happen. So in terms of the actual... I'm so glad you love these similes and I had to fight for the guts leaking under the toenails one. Oh, you're so that's kidding. really satisfying that you liked that one. So honest, the, the honest-to-God truth is that I write 100... And I get half a good one, and and then I d develop the half a good one. So there's a lot of throwing stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks, because what I love about both examples that you've sort of pulled out, and and the only ones I wanted left in were ones that really helped you experience an emotion or, or understand or see something in a new way, which is so hard when people have been writing books and writing sentences for so long, but to try and access a familiar feeling through unfamiliar language, I think 
it, you, you feel a click somewhere in your body when that happens and so I'm always looking for that click. Yeah, I, I love that. And I, I remember years ago reading something that I forget who wrote it said um, really good writing is when you write something familiar in an unfamiliar way or something unfamiliar in a familiar way. And I, I always sort of had that at the back of my mind that that's a really good way of thinking about what we're trying to do when we craft sentences and 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 develop plots and um, have themes and yeah um, try and make people experience emotions of our um, characters. So yeah, that's fantastic. And you've just ruined the next question for me. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> well, I think it, to sort of further that point, it's sort of the, you know when you say it's raining cats and dogs, that is so slick. That that sentence is so well worn from use that you don't even even imagine rain anymore. But if you're saying like it's raining ropes, which is just a fr how the French say it, but you say it in English where it's not a common sentence, and suddenly that that has a new and more evocative feeling. You know, so that's what you're going for. I think every yeah. time. And I, and I think also if you use a cliché, then by definition it's not creative writing because you haven't actually created anything. So, yeah. You yeah, you've just kind of said what someone might say, you know. And, and I think with the characters in this book, I'm often dealing with the fact that they themselves, the people in my life speak in cliché. I speak in cliché all the time. So you're trying to, with dialogue, you're always trying to get people to sound real. Um, and so I had to find ones that were kind of some for some characters that were almost cliche but tried to so there's um, I love the saying like I, you know um, I wouldn't piss on him if he was on fire mm. you know like that kind of so there's a couple of those that have made it into dialogue whereas yeah the the description around dialogue is where I can kind of play the most I feel yeah do you yeah. think it's okay then for characters to use cliches I think you have to be really careful because if you tell yourself it's okay then suddenly <laughs> like there's nothing holding back that tide um yeah so actually no I don't I really try and avoid it but I think there there had if if I hope that the only cliches in my book are are ones that I've tried to kind of give to a character for a very specific reason you know because they are part of language too, I yeah, guess. Yeah, yeah. And I think sometimes cliches can, in ca that characters use can sometimes help readers identify quickly what kind of person yeah, that is if you, if you want yeah. a shorthand to their That's very true. character. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so um, I think that, and you've touched on this actually, so yeah, thanks for spoiling some of my <laughs> questions, um, that you've used a lot of what I'm going to call familiar tropes and devices in here of what we now all know and recognise and love as Australian rural noir fiction, and it's, you know, worldwide, it's thanks very much to, I guess, people like Jane Harper and other ones who've really made uh, this genre famous and well-loved. So some of those tropes that you've used are, yeah, the missing girl and the weather and the landscape, the city cop that you mentioned who comes in and tries to solve the country while she's struggling with her own set of demons... Um, all the red herrings along the way, the slow unfolding of secrets and truths. So I want to know what drew you to this genre or was it something that happened by mistake and is this, do you read this kind of literature? Yeah, it's funny because there really was a point where I was like, get this, it's a small town, right, right, and it's got big secrets. You wouldn't believe it, you know, like... And, and, and it's, some cops. It's sort of embarrassing to think of now but I really, um, I don't think... I think to write the book, I had to kind of go with what was coming. And the, one of the first things I knew about the book was the collective of children, right? And I had this... The very first thing I wrote is still in the book and it's all the children coming home from school. And that felt to me like... 
you know, some people say write what you know, some people say write what you can imagine, but I say write what you can give detail to, you know. So I knew what it felt like to get the long bus home or to kind of walk in the hot dirt home or whatever because I grew up in a small country town. And so that came, that piece of writing came out quite easily. And then I was doing my thesis on collective narration and I, I was thinking about this idea of any time there's an us, there's kind of a them. Any time people are speaking together, it's often in opposition to something. It's a, a big event or an experience that they've all shared. And so the first thing that popped into my head was that a girl was missing. And one of the first things I knew, and this is just one of those bolts of inspiration thing, was that she had died. And that's not a spoiler because um, it's Esther's body we find in the opening. Um, but that the first thing... And, and I knew who had killed her, right? And that, without me being at all conversant about, about crime, because in answer to your other question, I was not a crime reader. <laughs> and that's because I was, I'm a big wuss. I do most of my reading at night. And so I found like when I read that genre that I didn't sleep well, you know. And so I've now really changed that though because I, ha I have such respect for the, the kind of work that goes into a crime plot because it's one place where we really promise the reader that everything we're showing them and everything that they, they learn is going to kind of come together. You can't do a, like a Murakami. I used to love Murakami, for example, but now I just find, okay, there's a woman and she's like mysterious and then we look at the ocean and then it's the end, you know. Um, and they're it, beautiful and they were very important books to me for a while, but now I really come to value the rigour of plot and I read widely in crime now, but I just do it in the morning. So I have like a morning session of, of reading. Um, and so, yes, in answer to your question, I didn't know that this was a genre or a trope or... And I even went, oh, Missing Girl, like that's kind of different, you know, like... And I just look at it and I go, you were an idiot. Like you just had no... But I do think if you knew some of the stuff you know as you learn along at the beginning, you would never start because every story kind of feels... Um, and I was devastated when I was like, what's this book called? The Dry. And I read it about two oh, or three years oh, in. Oh, are you kidding me? <laughs> and I did. I control. Um, I con and I love those. I love Jane's books. And I think that. But I did control F the word dry in my document. And I just took it out. So you'll notice the town is quite hot. And it's quite, you know. Yeah. Um, but it's the, the word dry is not mentioned. And if you spot it, you can let me know. And we can <laughs> take it out of. But, you know, you do. You want, you want your story to be original. But then what, what you realise is by the time you've gotten through and you've made these characters real people, there's no... Even if you're telling exactly the same story, it's going to be so, so different. Um, and so you kind of forgive yourself for the fact that there's a limited number of plots or a limited... And I, I did work really hard on, on delivering that, that crime structure once I realised that that was the kind of direction that I was heading. Um, but, you know, the Detective Sergeant Sarah Michael started out as the tiniest of tiny characters... And people kept saying, I just, we need a little bit more. We need to see the procedure a little bit more. We need to know what's going on. And once I started caring about her and finding her interesting and seeing how she could, you know, um, and kind of realising what the reader would feel ripped off if she didn't mm. have something, something to do with the kind of the big revelations and, the, and how the crime gets solved. Yeah. Um, okay. yeah. Can I, uh, um, you said then that people kept saying we want a bit more, we want a bit more. Who are these people, Hayley? I'm very fortunate in that I've... Um, so you, you mentioned before that I used to work for Wollongong Writers' Festival, so I was their director for a couple of years but also volunteered and, and kind of just got the joy of meeting other writers who um, kind of let you say that you're a writer and, and they say they're a writer too and you kind of believe each other, you know. Um, and then I've had really practical support from... actually moved into... Uh, like moved in next to a friend of mine from the festivals who went on to become one of my first readers, has read the book about 20 times, I think. Um, and I was also doing the book as part of a PhD, so I had this wonderful PhD supervisor kind of um, 
who is a very plot person. And I think I learned a lot of really great things from Dr. Shady Cosgrove, who was my PhD supervisor. One of which is that my time is basically meaningless. Like, if it needs to be like written again, if the scene needs to be written again or it needs to be done better, you just do it. And I think it's really healthy as a writer to have a real disregard. Like, oh, but I spent ages on this and oh, I really like this. And it's sort of, I think you can know what's true in the world of your book and you have to keep fighting for that. Yeah. But if someone says, oh, I was just confused, you know, or I was, like, I'm always really attentive to that. And one of my sort of proudest achievements as a writer is when someone says, oh, you take feedback well, which is not to say I take it well in the moment because I look at it, like, I have to get it, print it out, go and stare at the ocean, you know, and go, like, you don't know, you know. But then eventually I kind of start to make a list and go, okay, I need, I agree with that. And then slowly everything just kind of tends to move over. Except there was one person who told me I should take the chorus out altogether. And I'm really glad that I... But what she was saying is it's, there's not enough of it or it's not doing enough or it's not... So instead of taking it out, I added more. Oh, and yeah, I'm glad I did good. that. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm glad you did that too. <laughs> and everyone who reads the book will be glad you did that without a doubt. Um, I, I loved all that. That was fantastic. Uh, changing topic a little bit, uh, the llamas. I can't <laughs> not mention the llamas. So can you tell people about the llamas? And I want to know... Why the llamas? Why and how and... Yeah, it's it's funny because that's something that has... Uh, I've had that question a couple of times from very... You know, and it's it's been an audience question before. Like, oh, what llama facts didn't make it in? Or um, And so, for context, Ronnie, the 12-year-old girl who's the best friend of the missing girl, um, loves llamas as one of her... She's also really into, like, Australian recess food of the late 90s, which is one of the my, things I really love about her. But to be honest, I think... Um, what part of it was I have a much younger sisters, so um, they're now 16 and 17, but when I was sort of in my late teens, they were in their early tweens or whatever, and one of them was into llamas, so that was kind of there. So um, you, you actually pinched the yeah, idea yeah, from so, your sister. Yeah, yeah. sorry. Um, and then, uh, you, you know, sorry to her. And But also, I guess, Ronnie had so much of me already, and I thought if I made Ronnie a really bookish kid that that would almost be one step too close. So she's already kind of a chubby, sassy, know-it-all who, like, wants to be the specific Power Ranger that she wants to be and no-one else can be that Power Ranger, you know, um, that I didn't want to then give her that aspect. And I, I do really feel like at a certain point you're almost parceling out parts of yourself to give to each character. Um, and so that was something that I really made up and had a lot of fun making up. So it's really lovely when people say, oh, I love the llama facts. So things like uh, a llama is pregnant for 350 days <laughs> or the Latin species name is a llama glama. Um, you know, things like that. They sort of... And, and the tongue. Yeah. Yeah, that they can only stick their tongue out not very far out at all and Ronnie kind of demonstrates to her mum. But I think with each character you're trying to figure out what makes them tick and they, it felt true to Ronnie that 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 would be something that she would like and be interested in. And it was, it was just kind of fun to write too. Yeah. Did you know all of those facts? Had your sister no. drowned you with them or did you have <laughs> no, to do I, some I did, research? No, I did have to like Google some llama facts and kind of... <laughs> what, you, what I wanted is, you know, like if you ever got kids' own or knew someone who would get like a kids' magazine, there'd often be like a page of facts. Yeah. Um, so I had this idea that she has National Geographic that so her mum gets secondhand from the newsagents and she sort of picks through what she can get and those books you get from the book club, like kiddie book clubs at school and stuff like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, fun. yeah, yeah, the, the llamas are great. I just love them. <laughs> so there's a lot of fun in some aspects of the book, but as well as having those, yeah, familiar tropes of the... Um, Rural fiction, rural noir fiction. 
there are times also when you dig a bit deeper and there are some pretty important issues that you raise like domestic violence, sexual abuse, coercive control and uh, I'm just going to refer to my notes. Oh, yes, that's right because luckily I've got this here with me because I think one of the things that I really did like about this way of looking at some of these deeper issues without drowning us in them is that you have Sarah, who's the cop, you have her dad telling her about life and one of the things he says about whether people are going to be, I don't know, kind of law-abiding citizens or not, he says, and he's used a really nice metaphor which I won't go into, but he says, all the people on this side confuse making good choices with having good choices. And I just think this is such a superb way of saying a lot of our lives and, and the choices that we make are more based on luck, where and when we've been born and into what sort of circumstances and a whole lot of other things. So can you talk to us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's interesting because weirdly there's kind of a connection to the llama thing, so you have to go with me here. So in, in the same way that to access Ronnie I had to figure out like what she liked and what drove her, it occurred to me that anyone who is a member of the New South Wales Police Force, particularly sort of a woman, particularly a gay woman, um, it ha- is, is kind of going to have her own reasons for being in the force, one of which is that her father was a police officer and that's important to her. Um, but I, I did interview, I did a, um, I spoke to a female police officer because I wanted to kind of get a sense of some, you know, it's just some of those great details you can only get by, um, by talking to someone who's living and breathing that. Um, and this idea of being, uh, and it's another version of the us and them, right? So being on the good side and being an enforcer and being kind of a good person or on the, on the side of the law versus being over there and being one of those people seemed to be an important idea to, to the woman that I spoke to and in sort of cops more generally. I think you go into that with a belief that you will, will be on the right side of something, you know, um, and I think what's interesting for me is writing a character who's, you know, I don't, I don't, I think policing can do damage, you know, and it does damage it, you know, we still, um, no one's ever been prosecuted for a death in custody, for example, um, of, of a First Nations person. So... I guess thinking about how Sarah would think about it and what I think one of the things she's grappling with and one of the things I wanted her to kind of be mulling over and and when you read the book you can you sort of slowly it slowly unfolds why she might be thinking about that very particularly for herself in that time Um, but this idea of actually maybe it's not just I'm on the right side and you're on the bad side maybe that 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 limit is porous and I think that would be really scary to someone like Sarah. Um, so I was, yeah, I was thinking about that all the way through. And like anything, you sort of, you go deeper into the character, you almost find that that's a concern for them and then you go back and you try and layer it through. Yeah, and I like that concept of the other because all of us who are law-abiding citizens, <laughs> I'll say that loosely, <laughs> like to think, I think, that the people who aren't are over there. That's not me, I'm not one of those people. And I know Helen Garner's very interested in this idea that, you know, the the people who we characterise sometimes as monsters because they've done horrific deeds, we like to think of them as monsters because then it separates them from us, that we would never do those things. And I, I, I really like this idea that 
you know, the, the line is blurred and it mm. depends on lots of things, including, you know, obviously circumstances and situations at the time. And, of course, that all unfolds in the book. Um, and in fiction, you really do – you get a kind of truth you don't get elsewhere. And, I, you know, in terms of – you can really – though? <laughs> you really can drill down and try to understand why someone is the way they are. And you're forced to kind of – fiction is, a, is one of the deepest ways I know of paying attention in terms of when you encounter someone in fiction as a reader or when you write them, you can't just go, oh, this, this kind of person and I'm moving on. Um, you, I, I had to see each of my character, each of my characters, including some of the ones that do some pretty horrible stuff. And that's not a spoiler alert. I mean, it is. It's been called rural noir for a reason. Bad things happen, um, but but it's balanced with the fact that everyone, no, everyone is is also capable of joy and kindness, and um, no one is just one thing. I think, although some of my men folk come off pretty badly. I think they I do. They do, but they deserve it. <laughs> Some totally of them are just fine. pricks. I mean, you can just be a prick. That's also possible. <laughs> it's true. What about um, talking about Sarah? And so she's the cop who comes to investigate Esther's disappearance. Um, I, I think there's this f- relatively recent uh, phenomenon where all the cops have to be flawed. And I remember when I was a kid growing up and reading, you know, Agatha Christie with, you know, Poirot and Miss Marple and think characters like that and watching TV shows with... Um, characters like Columbo, those characters were not flawed. Aha, uh, the smartest yeah. person in the room. <laughs> yes, that's right. The smartest person in the room always knew who the baddie was and just had to find a way to trap them. So why do you think we've gone for this very familiar idea now that the, the cop has to be flawed as well or have demons they're struggling with? Yeah, I think what's great about realising that you're writing within a genre is then going, okay, there are these expectations and I can be within or I can, you know, I can flow against and both are kind of valid options and people are doing it. One person who does that really well in terms of having uh, an unflawed or, or a, you know, a sort of happy domestic situation, which we don't often see, is Danuka McKenzie's The Torrent. It's, it's a really great example of that. Um, and you, you keep expecting the husband to, like, die or something bad to happen. But he's just a nice guy who is co-parenting his children. Like, you're like, whoa, it's amazing. Um, you know, so I think, though, in my book, um, I, I was more... I guess by the time Sarah had kind of made herself clear to me... I, one thing that I did know is that she's very good at her job. Like, none of her flaws are, are sort of preventing her. From, she, and she's not a drinker. She's not a... Um, she's, she's someone who's there and she's doing a good job. She's commanding respect in a difficult position. Yeah. Um, and so, I guess... Part of it then goes into queer characters more so. So, because she's a gay character, there, you know, and there's... I, I think, again, an expectation that you either flow against or kind of go with, which is... I, for one, coming up as a queer young person, really loved finding happy stories. And, that, you know, there's a history of that not being the case. There's kind of... Um, but then I almost feel like you can come full circle and, and it, people are allowed to be a bit flawed or, or... And it's also not the point of them as a character that they're, like, struggling with certain knowledge or about coming out. Like, that is not Sarah's story. She is out. She is having relationship issues when she comes into the story, but but no more or less than it feels like someone kind of would experience, you know. And so it's not the point of her as a character. So I felt like I was thinking about both those things. I wanted her to to be a real and, and be allowed to be flawed in the ways that we're all allowed to be flawed without kind of, yeah, getting so drunk that she, um, you know, stuffs up the investigation or something like that. 
and she is. She's good at her at driving, and is ultimately the reason it all comes together. I think. Yeah, yeah, which is good, isn't it? Because we do like seeing strong female leads. <laughs> it's really good. Um, so I'm just conscious of the time. Has anyone got any questions they'd like to grill Haley with? Okay, Mary. I'll just repeat the question for the podcast. So it was, how long did it take to write the first draft? And what was the process, the journey to publication? Yep. Um, they're both excellent questions. And what's hard is that I never... I still don't, haven't finished a first draft. Like, I still, I still can't tell you the moment that... Uh, it was a really big psychic thing for me. Like, once I thought I'd had the first draft and I posted about it on Facebook and then about 10 seconds later I immediately just entered an abyss of existential angst and I deleted the post because it really was like who am I to say that this is any anywhere kind of going anywhere going to be anything um, and yet I'm spending all this time on it and I'm doing a PhD and I'm telling it like no I can't come to that I'm like working on this book supposedly so it, I found it really difficult to say okay all of the elements of it that I think are the basis are in there because my experience was every time I learnt a little bit more about the character that enriched some other element of plot and so I think it's it's more a question of how do you define a first draft and now I think I would say that I have a kind of first draft of my second novel um, and I know you're probably going to ask about that but because there's enough words on the page that I'm not terrified to like go to it and sit down. Like, I physically feel comfortable also just coming out and doing other things because it feels like there's enough on the page. Um, so, I, yeah, I, I, I couldn't call that for my first book, but, I, yeah. Um, and what was the second question? The journey to publication. Yes. So, I know that I started the book in 2016, so there's a really clear... And I finished the book around the time that I got an agent. Um, so the writing process took about five years, four and a half, five years, and then probably another 18 months from having a, something that was fairly close to what we have now to then going through structural edits, copy edit, which I loved. Pan Macmillan, um, I had such a wonderful editing experience and I really felt like at the end there should be about 10 other people's names like on the cover because it, you get to take it to places you could never take it. But yeah, four and a half, five years for that for it to have enough to offer someone else that they could then enter the world and feel like they could see what they wanted to fix about it, which is actually such a big step. Like when for so long you're just writing into this thing that is of interest to pretty much only you mm. and that's normal and fine and that's how it's meant to feel is what I always try and tell people, yeah. And what about how did you get an agent? I was really fortunate in that I had been shortlisted for the Penguin Prize and, and then not long after... Which means that you entered the Penguin Prize. Yes, and entering prizes is something that I definitely recommend, if only because it kind of forces you to externalise what you've got and kind of work it into some kind of shape. Often it forces you to write some kind of synopsis or list of events, which can be helpful when you're like me. I'm a total pantser, so it's always kind of trying to figure out what I'd done after I'd done it. Um, but then the, the Kill Your Darlings thing was... Uh, when I was shortlisted for that, you, you get an editorial report, like a developmental edit and that really helped me take it to another place and then I took that version and I submitted it to an agent and I only sent it to one Australian agent and that was Grace Heifetz. Oh. Sent it to her on a Friday night, I was at Varuna and late on a Sunday night she emailed me back and she said, let's do this, you know. But that was after many, 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 many rejections and yeah. I... Um, but that feeling that someone goes, yes, this, this appeals to me, this speaks to me was... was like worth all of that mm. horror. <laughs> That's great. Now we're nearly at the end, so I will throw that 
inevitable question. What are you working on next, Hayley? Yes, so I'm definitely someone who's very superstitious about it. So I kind of... um, I would say that I am... It, something, someone will die early enough that people go, okay, this is great, this is crime, I feel I'm comfortable, this, this doesn't feel a world away from Dirt Town. It will be in a small community but not this kind of small community because I feel like I've kind of dealt with this town for me um, and it's not a Detective Sergeant Sarah Michael, so it's not a, a follow-on, it is yep. a standalone. Yep. But my hope is that um, my goal is always, you know, that, that, that there's beautiful sentences and that, that, that it's an event of voice but I really want it to grab you by the scruff of the neck and kind of pull you kicking and screaming to the inevitable but surprising conclusion. Mm, okay. That's and the goal. Yep, that is sensational, <laughs> of course. And do you deal with some difficult issues again? I think life. Anyone who is alive in the world deals with difficult issues. <laughs> Such a philosopher. <laughs> but I do, and I think there's... What's sad is you make up imaginary friends that you really love and then you do some really horrible, horrible things to them. Um, but I'm ready to do that work for the rest of my life, I think. I love it. It, it just fulfills me in a way that, that I still find remarkable. Uh, and I think that is a perfect spot at which to stop. Thank you very much, Hayley. Thank you to everyone who's come along, especially, as we said, on this very cold winter night. And I think we should give Hayley a round of applause, not only for the questions and answers, but this fantastic book. Thank you, Hayley. And also Lynn, I think. Oh, for your incredibly thoughtful questions. It's so wonderful as a writer, and a writer who's just had their book come out, have someone go through and read your work so carefully. And you, you know that you, I admire you and your book so much, so thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> That's lovely. Thank you. You can stream previous episodes of The Readings Podcast at our website. We'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Kelly. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of the show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land and pay my earnest respects to elders past, the present and those emerging. Thank you for listening. <laughs>